Every business has a culture. Every business has a culture. The culture is made up of the thousands of interactions that your employees have on a daily basis. You can either build that intentionally or let it build itself. In a remote firm, you have to build it intentionally. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. All right, Kev, we just had Brandon Hall of Hall CPA, real estate CPA on the pod. A really good episode, I think. Brandon is a really impressive entrepreneur, particularly from our perspective, being guys that are in service businesses. He's done what I believe is impossible, which is scaling a service business that relies on people, uh, or or I think may be impossible. Do you you really believe that? (laughs) We're in trouble. I do. I do. I I think, I no, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's a, a very difficult right it is yeah. in accounting in law to to scale a, a firm like he's done and you know and and he's been at it for a decade right and so he started when he was 25 and you know had the audacity i guess is one way to describe it to leave a big four accounting firm very early on and go right into running his own shop which very few people would have the courage or the know how yeah. to do that. And he addresses how he got there. And it's similar to our story. So I thought that was pretty interesting. What were your takeaways? No, I, thought, I thought it was a great story and, and a great example of entrepreneurship kind of taking a mind of its own. I mean, I really enjoyed hearing the goals he set for himself back when he was launching his CPA firm. And I mean, his 10-year goal, I think he said was like a million dollars, right? Like he's on track to 10x, right? Which is fun and exciting and you know it it kind of boosts that confidence of like things you know when you really dig in when you really learn how to manage when you really learn how to lead how rapidly these things can take a a life of their own when growing and scaling a business And, and i thought just a ton of super helpful information and not just for folks like us in professional services i mean entrepreneurship generally we talk about the different phases of growth and kind of bursting through that technical expert into management into executive and the difficulties of rising through that and things like that. Just super, super valuable information from uh, a really experienced operator um, and someone who scaled a business. I thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, no, totally. And you know, if I'm a guy who's driving in my car right now and I'm working a job I don't like, and I'm interested in entrepreneurship, or even if I'm an entrepreneur, like at yours and I's level, you know, we've started recently, things are going well, but we're building and we're trying to kind of figure it out as we go. Yeah, Fascinating to kind of unpack the story of what a business will do, you know, go through those various stages, like you said, of being that operator who's grinding, you know, Brandon, I think probably grinded as hard or harder than Anybody who starts an entrepreneurship based on the way he described it, maybe even harder than he needed to necessarily, but accelerating his timeline and then transitioning into kind of the manager phase and then to the executive phase and having a dramatically different lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, okay, like I've got a great organization that I've built. So now I need to diversify out into real estate. And what's the best way to do that once you've got cash flow? So he tells the full kind of entrepreneurial journey. And I always talk about like the, the a goal for an entrepreneur is not to go build Google, not to go build Uber. Like that's not going to happen. And if you try, you're probably 99% fail, but you can do what Brandon did. You know, the average person can go, not to minimize what Brandon did, but this should be the goal of the average person. Build a high quality service business that you're passionate about, scale it, and then get that money out into other diversified investments. And you've made it in America. We- we and preach so about exciting. that time and time again. It's about financial and time freedom that doesn't require a billion dollars. And and I think Brandon is just a great example of someone who certainly paid his dues. And he talks about those, like you said, those long work weeks early on when scaling, but he's really built something special. I think that's some 
you know, phenomenal financial and kind of time, freedom and wealth for him and his family. So we'll let the episode stand on its own. Enjoy our chat with Brandon Hall. All right, Brandon, super excited to have you join Monday Millionaires today. Why don't we just start with kind of the preliminaries and get them out of the way quickly? Why don't you introduce yourself? I know you're an accountant, you run your own firm, but why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the firm you run? And then let's like really dig into your entrepreneurial journey. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So I am the founder CEO of Hall CPA PLC. We're also known as like the real estate CPAs, the real estate CPA.com. The firm is 100% niched in real estate. So we've got about 800 clients across the United States. It's 100% remote, which is really cool. So we service all of our clients remotely and all of our employees work out of their homes all across the United States and globe, I should say. We've got about um, 60, 65 folks globally. I started the firm back in 2015, 2015. And I've grown it, you know, since so the last two years, we've been on the Inc 5000, which is really cool. We're starting to get some notoriety in the accounting space, which is really cool. But we just run a very different look and feel type of firm. We fix price 95% plus of our projects are fixed slash value price. We don't bill hourly, we don't track time, especially for performance reasons. Just to be um, clear for the regulators listening, he means fixed fee pricing, not that he does price fixing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <joke, yeah>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no. So we, uh, yeah, just a very different, very different look and feel, very different firm, Yeah, uh, more modern approach to it. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. It's It's been great. I graduated uh, back in 2013 from college, did a year and a half at Pricewaterhouse, did another year and a half at Ernst & Young. Uh, and then launched this and just thought that I could do it better. Honestly, when I launched this, it was a lot of ego. It was just a lot of me not <laughs> wanting to take orders, <laughs> thinking that I could do it better. And man, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. You know, if you're launching a firm and you're unhappy with your current firm, just know that they're, you know, especially like a big firm, they've been around for a while. They've gone through those mistakes. So you might disagree with the business model, but they figured a lot of things out. <laughs> Something We've, that I had to figure out. <laughs> we found ourselves saying that a lot when we were launching our law firm, where it was like, oh, we're going we're gonna to completely disrupt the legal industry, which I think we have to an extent. But as time went on, we found ourselves saying more and more like, okay, now I get why they do it that way, right? And yeah, why they've done yeah. it that way for 250 years. Every consultant you know? yeah. we talked to when we started was like, giving us exactly the same business model. And we were like, that's what they now <laughs> got to go up market. But uh, so, so, I mean, I guess you got to, to the heart of the first question, but it's fascinating to me. You graduate in 2013. The H list has you starting for a 2016. You said 2015. We'll have to fact check that. But <laughs> I, I think mean, 2015, would... I netted like 4,000 bucks. So I don't know, depending on who's asking, depends on when I say Well, that was getting, did you, did you start in public accounting saying, I'm going to go start my own firm. I just need a couple of years. And where did that come from? Because to me, as somebody, you know, as a lawyer, right, it, maybe that's an analog, maybe it's not. But, you know, I started at Big Law and looking out and thinking about starting my own firm scene virtually impossible or like brain damage compared to being at a big place like UI and PwC. So, so tell us about that. How did you get started? Yeah. So I've always had visions of entrepreneurship. When I was in high school, I had like a little mulching lawn mowing business in college, tried to sell t-shirts and books and different things like that. And no, none of that was like <laughs> very successful at all, but it didn't matter. I was like trying and I thought it was cool to like make a little bit of money. And when I graduated college, I don't know necessarily that entrepreneurship was on my mind, but financial independence definitely was. So I was, I had audited a real estate finance class my senior year of college. So I sat in on a master's class and the professor had like 50 properties. And so he and I would go get coffee and he'd tell me all about his portfolio. So I had like really early exposure to the power of investing in rental real estate, what that can do for you over the long run. Yeah. And I think that was really important. So for me, I was just more focused on financial independence. But what happened was when I got to PwC, I was about three months into the job and realized this is just not going to work for me. Like I, I can't, it's terrible. You know, I thought going into it, and this is what they sell you on when you're going to school is like the big four. That's the way right. to go. 
which I, you know, I, I might get skewered in on by the accountants, but I kind of agree with if you're coming out of school, you go for the biggest shop that will take you from a resume building perspective, and you're going to set yourself up for the future. And that was kind of my mindset. So I went the biggest shop that would take me, which is PwC. And I kind of learned that my financial independence was going to take a really long time, like like to the tune yeah. of 15, 20 years, right? Make partner, make 400K a year, and then finally you've made it. So I was kind of doing the math and it was about three months in, I got really disgruntled because I was just like, I don't want to wait that long. There's got to be something else. And so I started trying to figure out how to invest in real estate at that point. But through that process of trying to figure out how to invest in real estate, I learned that there were a lot of people asking tax questions about investing in real estate. I was studying for my CPA exam at the time. So I just figured it'd be a good test of my knowledge to see if I could answer these tax questions. And what happened was it was this like this loop, this addiction loop, because it was this online forum called Bigger Pockets. Yep. People would ask questions. I would reply with an answer. And then they would reply and they would say, thank you so much. You're great. Right. So I'm getting this positive feedback. How do in I hire time. you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and it took a while for people to say, can I hire you? Yeah. It was probably like a six month process before the first person sort of reached out. But I had gotten addicted to this. Thanks so much. You are great you know, this positive feedback that I wasn't getting anywhere else. So I just did more and more of that. Like I got addicted to the process of giving people these answers online, which ironically built my brand on that platform, which then gave me the jumpstart to build the business. So once I realized I had a path to business, I realized, okay, cool. I can realize my financial independence goals a lot earlier. I can run a remote firm. I can have 50 clients. I can make, you know, 90K a year. And I could sit on the beach and or I could go anywhere that I want to. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be in an office. I don't have to wear a suit and tie. I don't have to see the clients face to face. All I have to do is just figure out how to have 50 of these clients. And that's kind of where it started. It's since blossomed massively right. since. But uh, how many clients do you have today, Brady? We've got about 800, clients. 800 clients. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Very impressive. Yeah. Thank you. How, like, <laughs> Thinking back to that time, I'm just curious how, like, had you seen other people doing the remote model and things like that? Because I, I feel like in 2023, it's one thing where coming out of the COVID pandemic and like the whole world's realizing how much can actually be remote that doesn't have to be in person. I felt like back in 2015, 2016, when you're thinking about doing this, that was a pretty radical idea. Like, how, how yeah. did you stumble on that and think like, yeah, this is really a workable, viable solution without having a good model to see like, oh, those guys are killing it. I'll just go model what they do. Yeah. Well, so, so like I said, I wanted, so there are two things. One on this bigger pockets forum, I realized there are people all over the country that were asking these tax questions. And so yeah. I just figured, Hey, as long as you're willing to jump on a phone with me and do emails, we don't need to see each other face to face. Like we'll be yeah. okay. And if Becky, if I could convince people that that was okay, that if they were working with somebody that was just doing real estate tax returns, that's better for them, then I figured I could win in the long run. But on the flip side, there, there was nobody else that I was aware of at the time that was doing this. So I just didn't want to, I didn't want to, I hated having to go into an office every day and not see the client. I mean, you know, we sit on the client side, but we don't actually yeah. see the client. So I just hated that whole process. I hated the commute. I figured I could buy back two hours of my time because I was in DC, right? So commutes were pretty gnarly. So it was just, I wanted to be able to work anywhere in the world and service my clients at the same time. I wanted to be able to travel and service my clients. I've since done zero traveling, but my team, some people on my team have done some traveling, which is great. <laughs> it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like, you know, I had this great idea of, oh, if I run this virtual firm, I'll have lower overhead costs and, you know, yeah. I'll be more profitable, all that stuff. It was really just, okay, there's people all over the world asking these questions and I don't want to meet them face-to-face -face anyway because I just don't like that whole process. Not that I don't like meeting people face-to-face. -face. That's kind of where it stemmed from. I did later find out that there was an accountant who, his name's Ryan Lozanis, who was, he was running a virtual firm. I think he started his in like 2013, but I, I was not aware of him at the time. So yeah, to me, it was totally like brand new, figured all the processes. There was really nobody to copy. I kind of chuckled to myself when you said like, it took a while to kind of get to the point where people were like, can I hire you? And then I think you said it was something like six months or something. I just wanted to pause and point out, cause like I ran in, like we ran into the same thing with a law firm. Cause when you're in the thick of it, 
that feels like an eternity. But like, if you really step back and look at the macro level, just for people out there listening, thinking like, how do I make this transition? How do I build the reputation? Six months is not a long time to start putting out valuable content, to start building a reputation, to be able to get people to start hiring you. And, and I think that's just a, such a great, fascinating story. We found the same thing. We very publicly built our law firm off of Twitter. And it was, I mean, it was literally a matter of months of putting out valuable content when Eric and I kind of reconnected and looked at each other and said, man, there are a lot of people, you know, needing legal. It feels like it's a huge undertaking, but from a macro level, just stepping back, it, it goes quick when you invest the time into building that reputation. That bears that out. I mean, let's drill down these the chemists. I think that this is fascinating because what Brandon's describing is largely the experience that we had, which is you go from being somebody who's just providing, you're providing value to people because you're passionate about the space, utilizing the skill set that you have. I mean, I get this yeah. question all the time. I'm like, you know, how do you, what should I go do that's similar to you guys and be an entrepreneur? And you got to look at that Venn diagram of what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what you can make money doing. And so we, you found something where, hey, I'm sitting on a Reddit forum answering questions because I love the subject matter and I'm able to address it as an expert from some maybe a technical background, like accounting or legal or whatever your skill set is, but that's where you should, and, and, and then you find out I can make money doing it. You should attack because that's where entrepreneurship genius comes in. That's how you go from being a 25 year old guy who launches a firm to being on the Inc. 5000 list a decade later, because you, you have to love it. I, I think yeah. you have to love it. When somebody loves the subject, you can tell in the organization that they build. So a really fascinating thing. I'm hearing you describe that great everyone. Shit, that's exactly what we did. Yeah. yeah. Well, just way sooner. So I'm a little bit jealous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you definitely have to love it because there's a lot of, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of long hours and there's a lot of pain that comes from running a business. So if you don't love it, you're going to burn out real quick. But, you know, that was my experience of not knowing how to run a business and learning how to run a business. But, you know, that's like, there's just a lot of growing pains that you have to work your way through that require a, long, a lot of hours and just brute force to yeah. make it through. Now on the back end, there's a lot of things that I would do differently knowing what I know now. So I feel like I could go and launch businesses in places that I'm not passionate about or don't love. But that first one, yeah, you, <laughs> if you don't love it, you're going to, you're going to burn out real quick. So you, you think not to put words in your mouth, you think part of your ability to kind of stick with it and find the success, particularly doing it at such a young, I mean, let's call it a spade inexperienced age as an accountant had a lot to do with the passion in a way where someone who's been doing it for 20 years, maybe passion isn't as integral. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you saying? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, I loved the idea of real estate when I bought my first three unit property right before I actually took on my first client. So I was always able okay. to say I'm a CPA that has investment real estate, right? right? which really helped me in the market. But I loved it. I loved the idea of real estate. I loved underwriting properties, modeling things out. It, it was just like the idea of financial independence and real estate giving you cash flow and sitting on the beach and doing nothing was amazing to me at the time. So yeah, so it, it allowed me, that love for it allowed me to work through the inevitable pain of learning how to run your first business, especially like a business like ours, right? Where it's people heavy. I mean, it's not like I was, you know, building a product that I could scale without a team. You know, I had to learn how to lead people. A lot of times people that were older than me and, you know, <laughs> certainly made my fair share of mistakes there. So. <laughs> Well, you, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll you said work through the inevitable pain. How long, describe that process. How long is, so you're starting your first business, you're passionate about it, so you can cut through the pain. What, what is that? What is an aspiring out in your experience? I think that, so, so in my experience, and I think that it's true for most accounting firms, 
until you reach a million dollars, it's a slog. It's a straight grind and revenue and or earnings. Revenue, million dollars revenue. Because you just, you can't, until you get to that point, you really can't start to build out your infrastructure. Like you're, ha you can't afford it. You just need people who are going to prepare and review tax returns and people that are going to do bookkeeping and review the bookkeeping, which means that all the systems development, all the infrastructure development relies on you as the owner, which translates to 80 hour work weeks for three years. At least that, that was my experience. So I, I did, I, I pulled roughly, I'll say roughly. I mean, sometimes it was more, sometimes it was less, but 80 hours was kind of the norm for probably about a period of three years. And I mean, it, sick. if I was sick, I would still work. I skipped every holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, everything. People around me, my family, my my wife, at the time, my fiance, and then my wife, my family, my sisters, my parents, they would all comment every single time that we got together about how much I worked and how it's unhealthy, which it probably was. I mean, it's just, <laughs> there's nothing about what I just said that is healthy. And I let my health go. <laughs> but... I just figured that if I could get to certain points of scale that I could build infrastructure out. I didn't know where that point was, yeah. but for me, it was about a million dollars where I could finally start hiring people that could help like more administrative office-based folks that could really help drive things forward in terms of systems implementation. And then it probably took us to about $4 million of revenue to where I finally was able to pick my head up and say, we've got something now that's rock solid and I can step away from the majority of the operations. So there's just different phases. I think when you're running a people focused firm, like I tell accountants and, and I don't know if this is true in your profession, but I tell accountants, the hardest time to run an accounting firm is probably between 10 to 20 employees. Cause your first 10 employees or so are like scrappy. They're really good at putting out fires. They work out of their email. That's their task management system, right? Whatever clients yeah. are yelling at you the loudest, that's the one you do next. And, you know, zero to 10 employees, that type of system, it, it works. It, it's not that bad. But when you hire employee number 11, they expect you to run a legit business, right? Like you, you just, there's this transition somewhere in there where it's just like the next employee is like, well, do you have an HR team? So, no, I'm HR, <laughs> Yeah, you know, T, but, who do I reach out about? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so you start onboarding those people who are game changers for your organization, but now all of a sudden you've got to give them a lot more than you, what you gave your first cohort of folks. And that means that now on top of the sales and the marketing and the client service that you're doing and the professional development and the employee management that you're doing, you also have to build stronger systems for this next round of people. So for me, 10 to 20 employees was incredibly challenging. Once we got past 20 employees, it became a lot easier. Yeah. Put that in context of the revenue numbers you just gave us. Because to me, so you said step away from the majority of the operations at 4 million. Is that, yeah. did that mean you became passive or what did that mean? Because to me, getting from 1 million in revenue, you get to 1 million in revenue, you're like, okay, I've, I figured it out. Take a step. Come on. To now I just have yeah. to, yeah, now I just have to go do that same thing more times and I'll get to 4 million. Right. Yeah. That doesn't feel like that big of a jump to, you know, having, you know, built a similar service business. So what does your life look like at sub a million versus north of 4 million in terms of your day to day? Sub a million was kind of grind mode day in, day out. It was putting out fires constantly, never being able to get ahead of client service, mispricing things, just not having great systems across the board. So when you don't price your services effectively, you can't pay better people more money to come join you, which means that you have to personally make up for that difference. So I was doing just a lot of the work. And again, this is just a lot of the learning process that you go through trying to figure out how to scale something like this. So if I did it all over again, I would do it completely differently. But at the time, that's what I did. So once I got past a million and I started onboarding that kind of that 10 to 20 employee range, um, things were getting easier because I, now I was onboarding managers that could manage the workflow and manage the fires. And it allowed me a little bit more time to go and focus on building the systems. But as I scaled, once I hit about four or so million, I was able to onboard people that could take over the system development too. So like a lot of the fires were off of my plate. The one-on-one -on -one delivery became less and less. The system right. development became less and less. So 
your role starts to you start to move out of the day to day and more into the like, okay, what are we doing next? How do I coach my employees to bring out the best in them? And that's what you're that's kind of where the role shifts to. And I would say, you know, last year we did 6.1 million and I was able to fully afford a VP of operations for the entire year. And that was just a complete game changer. I mean, I was still like involved in some things last year, but now that he's got a year under his belt starting this year, 2023, I was out of a lot. I mean, like almost zero day-to-day operational type stuff because he runs that all of that which allows me to focus on content, marketing, employee coaching and development and building even stronger systems and developing even better people. So I, so I was going to ask, you know, at the time of this recording in September 2023 or whatever, what your role looks like today. So you're largely managing people and running a sales funnel. Essentially it's is what I hear you saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my goal right now is to enhance our marketing so that we can bring in great clients. Yeah. It's to focus on recruiting. So we, you know, need to effectively be like where you would normally outsource your recruiting to some other shop. We need to now build that in house. We need to hire 30 people next year to keep up with our growth. So how do you go? And I mean, we're at 60 right now. How do you hire 30 more people in 12 months? Well, we got to be posting on LinkedIn and Twitter and making connections in the industry and making all of the accountants aware that we exist and that we're doing things a little uniquely and differently in order to facilitate that. So it's building the sales pipeline, but it's also building a recruiting pipeline. And then it's a lot of the coaching of my leaders so that they can go and coach their teams. Yeah. And are you looking back to when you launched? Are you, would you say you're sitting today where you thought? you would be back then? Were you thinking you were going to build this into a behemoth or this was going to be a small lifestyle business or what? Like, how does this stack up with what your goals were when you were first starting? That's a great question. I have, so I, when I first started, I framed my goals. Uh, And I think the only one that I didn't hit was like write a book or something, which I just don't want to dedicate myself to doing right now. (laughs) It sounds like based on our conversation with Dick Huber, it's a terrible Anyway, so <laughs> really, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. good. Yeah, um, I mean, we have like little books for lead magnets and, and advertising flows yeah. and stuff. But um, yeah, I think that if I can recall correctly, my five year goal was to like gross five hundred k, and my ten year goal was to gross a million bucks. I had no idea that you could build a business to be more than this or more than that, and I had no, I had zero idea that I would be here today you know, saying that, yeah, we're probably gonna do 8.2 million this year in revenue. Like just yeah, with those numbers, it sounds like you really thought this was going to be you acting as an accountant, maybe with some support staff for yeah. a yeah. number of clients. Effectively. Yeah. 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 I mean, I had like modeled out, all right, I'll buy an Audi R8 in 20 years when I'm 45. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was like, I was happy with all that. That was fine. It, it, but you know what happened? I started doing tax returns for real estate investors and as my brand grew, more sophisticated and more successful real estate investors came to me. Yeah. And when you do those tax returns, you just start realizing that these people are making an incredible amount of money, right? So I thought I came out of college. I had an offer. I accepted my offer with PwC for $65,000. I was in their consulting department. That was my out of college offer. I thought I was rich. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought that was just more money than I would ever need in my life. That art come much sooner. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I had like, I, oh man, I just thought that I had it made. And then, you know, doing this business and seeing people making, you know, doing doctor tax returns, they're making 600K a year. That it kind of, you kind of get anchored to this new number, yeah. right? So it's like, okay, what I'm making isn't good, but that's good. So how do I make 600K? And then you start yeah. doing this stuff yeah. for like these guys that run these funds and these syndicates and they're making yeah. 2 million a year. And you're like, how do I, okay. I didn't even realize that was possible to make that much money, but how do I go and figure out how to do that? So it, right. it never, ends. that will never run into yeah. ambitious people. <laughs> you know, I've had this conversation a million times with, you know, mentors and people in the law and, you know, you're making 2 million. How does that feel? You're making 5 million. How does it feel? You're always chasing the next turtle and, and I tried convincing my mentor in big law that I told him if I ever get 10 million in net worth, I'm out. Dumb. I'm chilling. And he was like, he's laughing. Yeah. <laughs> no, you won't. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, but you know what? Let's, on that let's, note, though, I, I just want to make a quick comment on that note because I think that you are absolutely right. But I think that for some, maybe most, I'm not really sure. For some people, when you hit a certain earnings threshold, you spin around and you go, what now what? And for me, that earnings threshold was way lower than I anticipated. Like I said, like I thought 65K was rich. So you can imagine that this earnings threshold was me was <laughs> for me was not that high. And when I hit that, I got like semi-depressed for a period of maybe six months after that. Because I didn't know what the purpose of running the business was anymore. There, I was still putting out a lot of fires and everything. But I was like, I already hit this earnings thing that was going to make me happy. And so for me, I had to really kind of reflect on what do I want to get out of the business? What do I really want to do? And so, yes, I want to make money. But before that inflection point, it was all about making money. And after that inflection point has become much a much larger and more inclusive vision than just let's go make a ton of money. Money's important, but it's not the end all be all anymore. Well, the pressures and the goals and the and things like that change when you're no longer chasing that paycheck, right? And yeah. you see that right. a lot in entrepreneurship, particularly in the ETA space where Eric and I spend a lot of our time, you know, folks talking about, are, you know, be careful of whether you're buying a paycheck or buying, you know, a, an asset that can scale and become worth real value. And I think when you get to that threshold, it changes a lot of your internal conversations, your goals for your family. When all of a sudden the paycheck side is handled, now I have this different source of wealth to really start thinking about what legacy do I want? How do I want to continue yeah. to build? What are the goals for my family? And that that's where it becomes really let, let, Let's back up though, Kevin, and actually put some names on this because I think what Brandon has described is fascinating to me. And I think it's a great model for any aspiring entrepreneur to say, how do I, what do I want to have happen? You know, Brandon's got the 10 years of look back now to say, here's what happened and here's what I would otherwise do. And here are some important thresholds. And I think it's fascinating because you described, and I would summarize it by saying you went from being somebody who discovered a passion that you could build a service business around that allowed you to push through that initial, we'll call it the operator phase where you're in the slog. It's you at your kitchen table, you're grinding, you're operating a business, you're answering questions, you're the whole dog and pony show. And at that stage, and this is something Kevin and I talked about when we launched our firm, you don't know when you're in the operator stage, is there a market for me to build something more than just me at my kitchen table doing a couple of transactions, having a couple of clients? And if there isn't, that's actually probably okay. You know, I can make a decent living. I'm working a job, but I've got control over that job. But if there is a market, you know, a market that is open to me building something more significant, it's going to take a really big push in that sub-million dollar operator stage. Then you flip, yep. you hit the million dollar revenue mark. And, you know, for different businesses with different margins, this will probably be different. But you get into the manager stage. Now I am a, still a sub-scale business, but I have some resources so I can start managing people and bringing in decent people to help build out some infrastructure in the business. That phase, at least in my experience and mine and Kevin's experience, because I think that's largely, Kevin, where we're, we're at right now yeah. in our business, it, it's a different, it's, you're no longer in the operator phase, but it's similarly challenging because now your role has switched and you're trying to build an actual business. And for us as lawyers and for you as an accountant, I would suspect you're, you were in a similar position where you've never built a business before. You've right. never managed that many people before. So you're having to learn that skill set in, you know, on the fly as you're flying the airplane. Then you get north of that four million, you figure it out. Now you have a model that works. You got the structure in place. You got people who are putting out fires instead of you. You get up to that $4 million mark, at least in your business. And that you then switch to that executive role. I think at that point, you're more of a CEO than you are a manager. You're actually running a viable operation. And you're saying, okay, I've got a model that works. And now I can hopefully scale this to $8.1 million in the next couple of years or whatever it is. So kind of a fascinating thing. My question to you would be, which stage is the most challenging of those three? And which, you know, I, I would suspect that most businesses probably peter out or die in the manager stage. And <clears throat> most people don't even have the ability to do what you've done and get the executive stage. So what's your perspective yeah. on it? Kind of characterizing it like that. I would agree with you in terms of where most businesses 
really hit their ceiling and they're not able to advance is probably that manager manager stage as you described it. Because I think that you have to shift when you get out of that like that operator phase and you're moving into that manager phase, it requires a different skill set, just like it does when you're moving from manager to executive, it requires a different skill set. And so you have to consciously make a shift, learn new skills and continuously develop yourself in order to keep pace with the business growth. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to do that. At least that's been my experience, like talking to folks in the accounting space, not necessarily that they're not willing to do that. They just, they don't know how to get out of the, I'm a technical expert and I'm doing the work type of role. And there's a lot of fear with moving out of that role. And I've experienced this in my own firm, trying to get my own top people out of the technical work and more focused on that manager, that executive level role. There's a lot of fear in letting that go because for all my life, I've been an accountant where the value is based on how many returns do I prepare and and how well do I do it? And now you're asking me to do this thing that's totally foreign. And I don't know if I'm going to succeed. I don't know if I can learn these new skills, which you totally can, but that's the fear, right? And so it's almost like, well, I'd rather just keep preparing the tax returns and not do this next thing because I know that I know what my value is when I do the tax returns, right? I know what my value is when I do the accounting. But what you miss is you miss leverage. It's just a misunderstanding of what leverage is, right? When I am preparing tax returns, when I am working on the accounting, doing whatever, the client service, that's valuable, but only to an extent. My only leverage is my hourly rate, if you bill hourly. If I advance to the manager level, now I've got more leverage because now I'm leading a team that's servicing the client. If I advance to the executive level, I've got even more leverage because I have more resources to deploy either people or systems or money, however I see fit. So it's all about just understanding leverage. But to answer your question, the hardest part for me was just that operator phase. You know, I am, it it was just a, it was a grind, man. I I actually really enjoy the manager and the executive level, like the leadership type stuff. It's where I, it's one of the areas that I excel. So it was an easy transition for me, but I have seen many people struggle, even in my own firm, successfully make that transition. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was going to make a joke that like I almost feel half judged <laughs> here, hearing you talk this through, right? Because that, that's a, at least personally, and Eric, I'm, I'm sure has a different experience he can speak to here in a second. But I find myself hitting that wall of where you're talking about that transition out of technical expert and really being in the weeds in a deal, doing substantive legal work, and being able to take that step up to the you know managerial level and start relying on a broader team for that technical expertise. And it's a tough, it's a tough transition when you've built a career mm-hmm. on that technical expertise and really aligned your professional value on that level of technical expertise to then decouple that and take a step back and say, well, maybe my value is actually better added in a managerial or executive capacity. And there are a lot of other great technical experts out there. And that's a tough transition I find myself in right now. Yeah, it's scary um, because you're giving up a piece of, you know, what got you to this point. And now you're being asked to do this completely new thing and learn completely new skills. And that's that can be terrifying, especially if somebody is concerned about job security. And that's what I've learned in my own firm It's just it's very hard to get people to transition the way that you need them to transition into these new roles because they don't want to give up what got them to that point. But what I try to tell accountants in my own firm and also, you know, whenever I talk to other firm owners is if you can build a business where you get to choose what you work on, on a day in day out basis, then you can still choose to go prepare tax returns if that's what, you know, makes you happy. But the difference is that I'm volunteering to help my team get work across the finish line instead of being forced to do that because I haven't built my platform effectively. And that's the difference that I like to drive home. You're still, to use our prior example, you're still relying on the paycheck generation in in a way that you're not to the same extent once you're over in that managerial or executive role. Yep. That's interesting. I'd be interested in pivoting for a second just to talk a little bit more about real estate as well. I mean, it sounds like from a very early age while in college, you really got interested in real estate 
what made you beyond passion go all in on that vertical? I mean, have you toyed with the idea of diversifying or what, what is it that just has you all in on real estate at this point? Yeah, I, so in college, I started learning about financial independence. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read all the books on how to manage your money. And I kept coming back to real estate as a way to build passive income. And it's, that's what initially got me really interested in it. I bought my first property early 2015. It was a three unit property and it cash flowed 700 bucks a month. And I think at the time I was earning like 80 K or something. So $700 a month was amazing. But then I sat down and I started building out my financial model, which I was, I always did at the time. And I realized, okay, it's going to take me 15 years to replace my income. And I was like scaling my income up over this time because I figured I would continue to get raises. And that's when I realized, all right, it's just going to, real estate's awesome, but unless you make it a business, it's going to take too long for me to get the financial independence that I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I love real estate. The cash flow, the debt pay down, the appreciation just gives you a great total return. And then you also have tax benefits, which we specialize in that help you shield all of that. So, you know, do you mind sharing? So what, I mean, what does your real estate portfolio look like today? What, like, what are you in? Are you still, are you single family home rentals? Are you all in on commercial? What does your personal portfolio look like at this point? Small multifamily properties. So duplexes, tries, quads, I've got 25 units total. And we haven't bought anything. I say we, my wife and I, I guess, haven't bought anything probably in the last 18 months or so. I think just the current market and the interest rates yeah. is incredibly high. So we're getting, we're hoping that over the next 12, 24 months, we'll be able to continue expanding the portfolio. But that's what I currently have today. But it's been interesting. You know, it's like my original view on real estate was this is my ticket out of work. And now my view on real estate is this is a way to preserve and grow wealth. I'm looking at my CPA firm as the main breadwinner and then just moving that cash into this asset class. Takes a long time to make money in real estate. Yeah, well, yeah, it does. It, if you do it, if you do it the way I'm doing it, it takes you an incredible <laughs> amount of time. Yes. But we have yeah. some clients, man, that they if you make it a business, just like anybody else, you know, yeah. if I dedicated 60 hours a week to run on a real estate business, you can make great money in real estate. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think people think of real estate though, as a passive asset class. And I think that's the important point to hone in on is the real kind of income generation and rapid wealth building of real estate isn't from the passive nature. It's from actively running it like a business and that those who who are trying to do it more passively, yeah, it's a little bit of a tougher, not tougher, but longer, longer lead time. But that's just, that's an outside observer who you know, someone interested in real estate, but hasn't made the jump yet. Yeah. I think that the passive marketing word or story is for sure false. (laughs) Our clients buy passive small businesses all the time, Brandon. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Passive. Yeah, sure. (laughs) The question we get, you know, I bought a, one of my 25 units is a short-term rental and it's a beach rental. And you know, it requires maybe like an hour or so a week to run it, but it's yeah. like hours at random times, you know, 1030 at night. and so obnoxious. There's, there's no, I, you know, real estate's not passive. I'm sure that you can make passive investments, you know, as a limited partner in syndications and funds. But if you're buying the underlying asset, it's not going to be passive for you. It's not going to be an, an incredible amount of time, but it's not going to be passive. So, so what I have seen servicing clients is that there is this in-between of like my real estate investing to date has been buy the asset, hand it off to a property manager, hope for the best. And that's not how you maximize your return. Right. But again, I'm spending all my time on my, my, my CPA firm, but there are people that are in between that and like running the real estate business full time who will dedicate 10 hours a week to building their portfolio and making sure that it's running effectively and making sure the property manager's top notch and definitely less passive, but they make a lot more money. We have clients that do that. And especially over the past seven years, like if you've been buying property, doing some rehab work to force the appreciation on it, even if we're talking like single family homes, doing a cash out refinance, buying the next property, just recycling those funds, 
we've seen people build pretty significant portfolios over the past seven, eight years, just because of where the market was and the market just right. running up and pushing all the values way up. So some people but even now, equity. Let, let's expand on the, the model that we talked about before. You start the service business, you're passionate, you go from operator to manager to executive. Now you've built something of significance. Your strategy with real estate is is to keep the, the keep the you know, tax advantages. Talk about the overall strategy of what you're trying to do. And we had somebody similar on recently who was in the consulting space, makes a lot of money consulting, goes and buys residential real estate in great neighborhoods, great schools, and that's so. This is a trend. So talk to us about the tax advantages of this and and why somebody would want to do what you've done. Yeah. So I think when you start earning, I mean, regardless of how much money you're earning, the question is always, what do I do with the savings, right? Do I leave it in a bank account? Do I put it into equities? Do I put it into real estate? And for me, uh, personally experiencing it, granted, I haven't been through a big economic recession, graduated 2013, right? So I missed 08, 09. And I'm very well aware of that. So what I'm saying is green, take my words with a grain of salt. But for me, investing in real estate is the best deal because I get cash flow. As you know, I only invest in properties that cash flow. So I get cash flow. The tenants paying down the loan and the market's forcing the appreciation up a few percentage points a year or over the past six to seven years, a lot more than that. <laughs> so I'm building a lot of equity, right? But it's all tax advantaged. Like the cash flow that I'm receiving is sheltered by depreciation most of the time. The equity that I'm I'm building is not taxed until I sell the asset. And I don't have to sell the asset. I could do a cash out refinance, which is just getting a new yep. loan to pay off the old loan. And whatever the spread is between the value of the new loan and the old loan, I get to pocket. And then I get to go and buy more real estate with. Or I can do a 1031 exchange if I do want to sell the asset. I can sell the asset, move it into a new asset via 1031 exchange and not pay tax. When you think about that, that the power of the uh, the tax advantages coupled with the different ways that you make money in real estate, again, cash flow, appreciation, loan pay down over the span of 30 years, it's hard to, it's hard to justify investing elsewhere. Now I'm at a point where I'm starting to diversify a lot more, but even then it's still, you know, every dollar that I put into equities, I'm like, should I be putting this into real estate instead? Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, we're lucky enough at our firm where we have onboarded some pretty uh, successful clients that are kind of at the end of their real estate journey. So you get to kind of see what the end result of your today's actions will be 30 years from now. And and when you see that, you gain a lot more confidence in what you're doing today <laughs> because they're, you know, you, you stick with real estate for 30 years. It, it, it's very difficult to blow it up. I mean, you can certainly do it. People have, right? You can over leverage, you can take risks that you should just not be taking. But as long as you're, as long as you approach it more conservatively, it's kind of hard to screw up. So that that's overall why I really love real estate. What do you, what's your doomsday prediction here? Just to go down that rabbit hole for a second. So we've got all these folks, I think somebody recently called the cash out refinance in in real estate investing, the holy grail of real estate investing, which to me felt a little weird at the time. This was, this, I remember this distinctly. This was, you know, two years ago when things were still fantastic. And I remember thinking, well, what happens if you've got an entire portfolio of highly leveraged pro product properties that you've taken all that cash out and now you've got a, you know, what happens when interest rates rise and you can no longer refinance those properties? Well, yeah. <laughs> so I think that for people that were buying pre 2021, and again, I'm just a CPA, I'm not an economist, I'm not a financial advisor. So take whatever I'm about to say with a grain of salt. You guys probably do those disclosures better than I do. But I think anybody that bought prior to 2021 is okay. Even if you leveraged up with cash out refinances, because, you know, cash out refinance, they're not going to go more than a 70% um loan to value right so you've got equity but i also think what you've got playing in your favor is the fact that we are at not so much anymore but the lowest amount of supply that the real estate market has really ever seen so everybody's very concerned about this like this big market crash what happens when interest rates go skyrocketing like they have and we've seen what happens well demand falls off a cliff 
but it doesn't mean that anything happens to supply, right? Like if rates go up to 7%, it's not going to necessarily make me say, let me go sell my home. It's not going to make builders bring more units onto the market. So we have these all-time low supply levels. And even though demand has cratered, we're still not at equilibrium. And until you get to that equilibrium point, until supply exceeds demand, you won't have price decreases. And so the, I think the going consensus among various real estate analysts that I follow is just that we're a long way off from that, like a long way off from that. So if you're worried about price decreases, I don't know that it's going to happen. Now, I do think in the multifamily space, you've got something interesting going on. So these people that were buying large multifamily assets and they were getting, well, I'll talk about the debt situation in a minute, but they were buying large multifamily assets and they'd raise a few million dollars from their investors. Right. I think that over the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to see, I don't want to say a collapse because I don't know how to make that prediction accurately or confidently, but I do think that you will see some sponsors lose their assets. So what was happening was sponsors were buying property with bridge debt. Uh, this is variable rate debt. So it's not like like government backed debt because the government backed debt, you know, they would take the current P and L, and they would underwrite based on the current P and L. So if I'm trying to buy a twenty million dollar apartment complex, and I go and I I give my the current P and L to these various lenders, the government backed is going okay. Well, based on the current P and L, we can give you ten mil, which means that I have got to go and raise ten million dollars of equity to buy the twenty million dollar apartment complex. The bridge debt those lenders were looking at the pro forma. So I could write up what I thought I could make on the property after rehab and the bridge debt would lend on that. So when I go to the bridge lender, they're looking at the pro forma and they go, I'll give you $15 million. Now I only got to raise $5 million in equity. I become a lot more competitive when acquiring assets. Right. At the same time, you had cap rate compression. So everything got more expensive. So all these things are working against operators. They're buying these properties. And then all the, but the bridge debt is a you know two, one, two, three year debt, right? You've got to- okay, I was about, I was about yeah. to ask. So we're sitting in a period where there's probably a massive amount of multifamily right. out there with bridge debt yes. in place that's yes. coming due in the next 12 to 18 months. Yes. And so it's coming due. And now that rates have spiked so much, the rate caps that these people buy, so you have to buy a rate right. cap that caps your rate in the event that rates rise. Well, back when they were buying in early 2021, it was 90K. Today, it's a million dollars. So I've got to come up with a million dollars to buy this rate cap, or I've got to somehow refinance my loan and nobody's going to do that because I haven't even been able to add the value to meet the pro forma that I was originally lending on. So I think that you're going to see a lot of sponsors that were buying that way. They're going to struggle. And you've already kind of seen it. There's been some, if you like follow real estate Twitter at all, there's been some prominent sponsors already go down. But I think over the next 12 to 18 months, you'll see more of more news on this because that's when all these rate caps, or that's when all these bridge debt loans are expiring. Yeah. So is bridge debt in that space? I mean, are like institutional lenders or is this like private you know, private debt that's, yeah. you know, that, I mean, who are these lenders doing the bridge loans? It's a good question. Honestly, it's probably above my pay grade. Yeah. I'll, I'll make myself look like a fool if I answer this confidently. I think that it's both. There's a lot of like, like funds that are involved in the lending process. So. Yeah. Brenda, I think we, we've got time enough for, I think, one additional topic. And I loved, you know, love the description of the business model and kind of how you built and then diversified to real estate. Talk to us about remote work. You know, obviously you were doing a remote work before anybody else was doing remote work. That became a buzzword. Now people are headed back to the office. There's a lot of very smart people that may be biased, may not be biased that are saying it doesn't work. We believe it does in our firm, but there's obviously pros and cons. Would love to, to hear your perspective since you've been doing it now for the better part of, I guess, a decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that every company works differently and if you want to have all your employees in an office, by all means, go for it. I used to be like a really hardcore remote work only, and I've kind of changed my tune on that. I think that there, I think remote work is amazing for people that are accountable to themselves. You really have to find that type of person to work in your firm. 
otherwise you're going to struggle. Like a lot of people coming, a lot of new hires coming out of college, what we have learned is that they have to first learn how to work a job before they're going to really thrive in our firm. So we tend to not hire a lot straight out of college. So I think that there's just different environments that serve it, that work well for different camps. Now, I will say that the people that say remote work doesn't work are typically missing something in the leadership department. Either they are they're, they don't have good systems in place and they're not seeing that. They don't communicate clearly. They don't set clear expectations. They're not spending the, the time the way that they should with their staff. Like when you work remote and you have a remote team, you have to figure out how to build systems that keep everybody connected, not only on work, but also just for social reasons. And everything becomes more intentional. Like you want to talk about culture building, every business has a culture. Every business has a culture. The culture is made up of the thousands of interactions that your employees have on a daily basis. You can either build that intentionally or let it build itself. In a remote firm, you have to build it intentionally. You have to find ways to bring people together. In the office, people just chat, right? They just meet each other at the coffee station. They hang out at each other's cubicles. And so it's just less of a focus and can actually lead you down bad paths. So I think remote work just forces you to be a better leader and in more, I don't know, just thinking more about how to really build a cohesive company. Not to say that you can't get that in the office. I just think that the office can be a crutch in that regard and make you not even think about it until it's too late, until you realize, wow, I've got a really toxic culture here, or man, I really blew this up and for years and didn't realize it. Have you dealt with or hired many kind of early career professionals? And how have you navigated that with the remote work model? Because that's something I struggle with. We've generally only onboarded pretty experienced folks who can operate on their own. But I mean, that's obviously one of the common <laughs> arguments against remote work, right? Is how do you train up the next generation, right? When you aren't there to give immediate feedback and talk organically and things like that. I'm, I'm curious how you've navigated that. Yeah. So all true, right? The common fears with remote work, if you've been working in an office is I can't train them as effectively. The feedback loops are not going to be very good. Right. You know, I, they're not going to raise problems. I'm not going to have good communication, but the reality is that all of those things can be solved intentionally if your intention of if you're intentionally building systems to solve them so for us we just we have a way that we engage staff on a daily weekly and monthly basis that brings all of this out we have a method of training that allows them to kind of get that feel of i'm looking over your shoulder and guiding you through the process our onboarding is very extensive it's very thought through because we can't just wing it, right? You can't just show up to the office and say, all right, sit in that cubicle, pull up a tax return, let's start going. It doesn't work like that here. You got to be much more intentional about it. So we have, we've solved all that and we've just done it by implementing systems intentionally as those problems crop up to avoid them cropping up in the future. Now, the early career professionals, what I was saying, like folks coming right out of college, we haven't quite solved yet. So yeah. if you're coming right out of college, the, the main problem is, what does a job mean? <laughs> How do you build good work habits? That's very difficult. What we have found, it's very difficult to train if this is your first job. So we actually love when people go to like the big four for two years and then we can hire them because the big four will yeah. teach you those habits and we can then hire and show you a whole beautiful new world <laughs> that you can live and work in. But that, that, Coming out of college person, that's very difficult. We've had success where somebody's been an intern with us for multiple years and then graduated, and then they just join our firm straight up, but they've had multiple years of kind of easing into yeah. what does a real job look like. So we've had success there. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a double-edged sword, right? Because like I'd be lying if I said my experience, you know, in big law firms didn't make me the M&A and securities lawyer that I am today. But by the same token, there's a lot of bad habits and things to unlearn as well. So, I, you know, you kind of have to out, out with the bad and, and keep the good. But there's uh, certainly a lot of benefit I see in, in doing that. Uh, it's tough. That's a tough problem to solve, I think, in a remote work environment. 
Yeah, it, it is a tough problem solving. Going back to the whole, like the phases of your business, right? When you're in operator mode, you can't, yeah. you don't have time to solve that problem. Yeah, you can't. Yep. Right. And so I don't even have to, I don't have time to respond to Slack messages, let alone. <laughs> <laughs> We're working right. on that over here, Brandon. So, but Bre I, listen, Bre amazing interview, Brandon. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on. We'll give you the last word, man. If there's anything you want to plug your business, you know, anything you're working on, let us know what it is and where to find, where folks can find you. Yeah, I appreciate that. If you are interested in connecting, you can just hit me up on Twitter. I'm at B Hall CPA. And then if you're interested, if you're like a real estate investor listening to this, or if you're a business owner or a high income earner listening to this and you're like, man, I want to buy some real estate and hire you guys to do the taxes, hit us up at www.therealestatecpa.com. Love that. Amazing. Brandon, All right, great Brandon. chatting with you today. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.